Hey everyone, it's David. Just letting you know today's episode of Positive Regression is brought to you by Sunday Scaries. Sunday Scaries is a leading manufacturer of CBD products, including gummies, tincture oils, energy shots, and more. Last year, Sunday Scaries won top accolades from Forbes, Men's Health, Allure, and Best Products. But don't just take their word for it. Take mine. I'm a proud CBD user. It helps with my anxiety and especially during the work stoppage, the end of a long day, a gummy or two, and an old truck series race on my iPad were just perfect. Just what I needed to get back to neutral and enjoy a good night's rest. You can give Sunday Scaries a try right now by going to sundayscaries.com and using the promo code POSREGPOD, that's P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D, for 20% off your purchase. And right now, Sunday Scaries is doing a very cool thing. They've launched the Cabin Scaries program in which a portion of sales will be donated to the Bartender Emergency Assistance Program to help hospitality workers displaced due to COVID-19. Again, that is sundayscaries.com, promo code POSREGPOD for 20% off. Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, we discuss NASCAR's long-awaited return and what we learned from Darlington and why our expectations of a few drivers and teams have already been altered. But first, as always, this is episode 62 of Positive Regression. This is the Brendan Gone edition. David, Las Vegas' own Brendan Gone, an affable presence in the garage, always for, good for an interview, a happy, fun interview. Uh, really, David, how you think of him or how you know Brendan Gone really depends on how long you've been a fan of, of racing because, you know, na- about now he's uh, sort of a, a super speedway ringer, seemingly good for a top 10 finish or a memorable flip at Talladega last year. But his career, his NASCAR career, goes back more than 20 years includes a stint as Rusty Wallace's teammate at Team Penske, if you remember that. And often he races a number 62 car, David, and uh, a lot of good memories of Brendan Gaughan. Yeah, as to the drafting track ringer uh, designation, I kind of like that. Four top 12 finishes in his final seven Cup Series starts at Daytona and Talladega. He had a knack for avoiding crashes except for the one that you mentioned at Talladega. <laughs> and that made the highlight reel. So I don't know. Maybe that's what he was shooting for. But he was able to pull results out the majority of the time. Um, but I think for me, you mentioned, you know, your relationship with Brendan Gone depends on how far back you go as a NASCAR fan or observer. And for me, his most memorable season was in the truck series in 2003, driving for his family team, owned by his father, Michael Orleans Racing, number 62 truck. And that year, he won six times. He entered the season finale at Homestead as the point leader. And this was before the chase and the playoff format. Uh, so this was the result of a year-long effort. And he he needed to pull out a good finish and as as fate would have it, a partner car to his chief competitor 
that year, which was Ted Musgrave. Uh, and it was owned by Jim Smith, uh, one of the original truck series team owners. That, uh, that truck, it was driven by Marty Houston. It got loose and it wrecked. And that took Brendan gone out about 30 laps from the finish. And it should be said that Jim Smith typically fielded two trucks. Sometimes it was three, but most of the time it was two. And in this race, he curiously fielded five trucks. Hmm, how and about that? That's not normal. And there was a suspicion then that those trucks were entered to do a little bit of dirty work. And after he was taken out of that uh, that crash, Brendan gone in his post-race interview, it was Barry Dodson who interviewed him on pit road. He told Barry Dodson, Jimmy Smith can kiss my ass, insinuating that he was hip to a plan if there was indeed a plan. But uh, ironically, Musgrave would then jump a restart as the leader. He was penalized. He didn't win the championship. The championship went to Travis Quapple. And that may have been the most intriguing truck series race in series history. So many layers to peel back. And Brendan Gaughan was the central character of all of it. It was. And that's a, you know, if you want to YouTube it or just research it more, just that whole season, but that, that race in particular, I looked up that season, David, for Brendan Gone. That was, that Homestead was his worst finish of the year. Uh, you know, came in the, in what could have been the championship race for him. He had two, only two finishes outside the top 20 and he finished fourth in points. So a very competitive season that year for Brendan Gone. Uh, look, on a personal side, as much as I, I like him, I also hate him because he's a Georgetown guy and I'm a Syracuse guy. <laughs> and we often go back and forth on Twitter. We are not afraid to, to chirp at each other, uh, when those things happen. But, uh, you know, famously also a member of the Georgetown basketball team, which you don't hear about many drivers being, uh, per, uh you know, college, collegiate basketball players, uh, teammate of Allen Iverson. Uh, a lot of memorable things with Brendan gone. And we haven't even mentioned the casino that he owns out in Las Vegas. He's, uh, he's living a good life. Yeah, and also he owns the slot machines that are in McCarran Airport in Las Vegas. I think those are the slot machines with the heaviest foot traffic in the world. I think I've seen that statistic. You know what? I'm going to tell you this. Um, that is a, a family-built empire. Good on them. Um, but Brendan Gone as a wealthy man, carries himself the way that I – believe I would if I were that wealthy, or at least I'd like to think that. He is, without a shadow of a doubt, the happiest guy in any NASCAR garage he's in. And that is so clear. He is, he, when he was racing, he was doing something that he truly loved. He loved the people he, he was around. Um, and he, he carried that. He carried the, the happiness and, it was infectious. I mean, it, it, it really was. I, I kind of admire it, uh, as opposed to, you know, the, the theory that, uh, if with mo money comes mo problems, <laughs> uh, this, this is the flip side of that. And it's kind of the thing like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Of course. This, this is how somebody like this should carry themselves. So Brendan gone, certainly uh, able to have a good life, but he doesn't for a second take it for granted, at least, uh, optically from what I can tell. Well said. That's well put. And uh, now I'm just, you know, thinking of him as as a happy guy. I hope we see him at the track soon. So episode 62 of Positive Regression, the Brendan Gone edition. And David, we get back to racing, which means we have some racing to talk about. Uh, two races we had in Darlington this week. It was just awesome to be back. 
uh, you know, it started with all the fanfare or not fanfare and Kevin Harvick's win on Sunday. And then it ended with fireworks despite the rain late on Wednesday night. And uh, let's pick up from the end of that race because uh, Denny Hamlin was the winner, but I think the story will be Kyle Busch, Chase Elliott. Uh, Kyle Busch didn't have much going throughout much of the race or much of the two races in Darlington. Finds himself in position, uh, those Gibbs cars closing at the end of Wednesday night's race, and he gets in a little tussle, a misjudgment, a mistake, and hits Chase Elliott, who looked like he had a car for a win. Uh, Just what was your reaction to all that? Uh, all three of them looked like they had cars for the win. And I, and I found this pretty curious. Uh, if you looked at the, the fastest cars, according to NASCAR's own, uh, loop scoring data, the fastest cars on long runs coming into this race were Chase Elliott and Kyle Busch. And the fastest car on long runs in last Sunday's race was Denny Hamlin. So there you had three Guys during tonight's race where, no, they they didn't have strong initial track position and they weren't making um, these giant leaps to the front uh, instantly. But over time, they just kind of built and built and built. And um, I think Larry McReynolds covered it pretty well, but the... The fact that uh, the 18 team with Kyle Busch and the 11 team with Denny Hamlin were being a little off kilter with how they were putting tires on, um, and eventually it got to a point where Hamlin was just going to be trading scuffs for scuffs. Chris Gabehart chose to keep him out, and if the rain didn't come, maybe the result would have changed, but you get the sense that these Gib cars, just based on where they have been in the year, they rank uh, 6th, 10th, 11th, and 14th in central speed. They just needed clean air, and they just needed a race like this one to go this way. This was the first race of the last three that actually had a live green flag pit cycle, and that goes to show that there's just been a lack of long runs over the course of the last three races if we're dating all the way back to Phoenix. These races haven't suited their styles, and it's not that they have had slow cars. They have just not had races in which they can show the kind of speed that they've built, and what they have built was long run speed. So I I found that interesting that, at least for those three teams, and Elliott's included in that, this was a race that kind of culminated the way that they needed it to. Uh, one of them came out the victor. Uh, one of them ended up wrecked. And one of them has just become far less popular than he already was on the, uh, the interwebs. But um, that's uh, that's NASCAR for you. Absolutely. Now, remember, during the break, I mean, one of the one of the episodes we did was talking about what we had learned in the first four races. And one of them was one of those things that we, we brought up was sort of some concern or just wonder about the Joe Gibbs racing cars. Now, I don't know how much we want to put into two races at Darlington, but David, I mean, they put three cars in the top 10 in Sunday's race at Darlington, and then they come back. And, and as we were talking about, Denny Hamlin gets the win. Kyle Busch is there at the end. Again, as you pointed out, long run speed. Eric Jones had a, an awesome move on Wednesday night and certainly looked like he was contending once he got some clean air. And uh, Martin Truex Jr. was strong in both races. So did, did we learn anything more, even if it was just two races? Uh, have, has anything changed about your impression of the Gibbs cars? I believe that they have speed. 
and certainly they have quantifiable long run speed. I don't think that there's going to be any panicking for Joe Gibbs racing. There's not going to be any panic in the buildup to the races at Charlotte. I think they're comfortable with what they have. It's just, it's a case of perception because, I mean, this is, this is kind of what I've built the, the relaunch of motorsportsanalytics.com around is this current obsession I have with team styles. And we see, we see this in other sports, uh, like the, the old Baltimore Ravens in the NFL, they come to mind. Who's their quarterback? Trent Dilfer. He was always called a game manager, right? Which was really just code. Like he doesn't fumble the handoff to the running back who's really <laughs> going to score his points. So, but, but, but it was widely accepted that those Ravens teams were very good, but they also had limitations and they had a, a defined style. And what we saw over these two races, both of the race winners, Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin, almost have polar opposite styles. Uh, Denny Hamlin came into tonight's race as one of the top five efficient passers. Um, he's also been a great restarter the last two years. Um, and oh, hello, he's 39. So he's at a statistical peak, but yeah. he is, but he has become this, this, this guy that you do not want to see in your rear view mirror on just a long green flag run because between him and Chris Gabehart, they have figured out that this is their strength. And now they have a win this year to show for it. And then the reverse is true for Kevin Harvick. I know that that race on Sunday ended, maybe well, the, the final run was me like 33 or 36 laps, but it was Harvick's restarts. He had the preferred groove on all of those restarts, look, to the leader go the spoils, that's fine, but it was his short runs that set him up for the long runs. And if you give Kevin Harvick clean air, he's a smart enough driver that he, he knows what to do to optimize his car in order to take advantage of that. There's already a clean air advantage, but in addition to that, there is a Kevin Harvick advantage. And that was all built, it all started from his restarts or even going back further, his initial track position and his long runs. We talked, uh, when he signed his extension, you know, we've noticed that last year his, his pass efficiency in 2019 went down. And that is uh, a jarring juxtaposition compared to where he was two or three years ago when he was the most dangerous passer in the field. That's not the case anymore. His style has switched. And in Sunday's win, we kind of saw that manifest to where if this race is going to have, it was a 400 mile race on Sunday. If this race is going to have 10 or 12 cautions, then you're going to have 11 or 13 restarts where Kevin Harvick, that, that is exactly where he wants to be. He wants to be in, you know, uh, arguably a, a preferred groove position, um, up front on a restart because that's where he can best dictate the race. And those two opposing styles were on display at Darlington. And now I'm curious to just watch two teams kind of built differently, like a complete 180 from one another. How are they going to progress through this next part of the season? with styles that we need to accept are different and that will cost them race wins, but could ultimately bring them a lot of success. 
All right. And just riffing here, I, I want to know what you think we learned about Jimmy Johnson. Because, look, coming into this, again, the first four races, you you wrote an article on Motorsports Analytics about um, the, the Hendricks speed and how good they've been. Chase Elliott came into this race as the overall fastest car. Alex Bowman had the win. William Byron shown some progress, as had, as had Jimmy Johnson. I've been pointing out that in each race this year, he'd gotten some really good stage points, something he did not do last year. And, and it ultimately hurt him, right? I mean, we're not scoring these stage points. He goes out on Sunday. Uh, I'll be, I'll admit I was one of those people rooting for the, the good story of Jimmy Johnson. I had crowned him before the first <laughs> stage was even over because he was leading it and it looked like he was going to win that stage. And then one lap before he pushes too hard, gets into Chris Busher, ruins his day, gets no stage points in the first race. And then we go to Wednesday night, no stage points in, in one or two and ends up salvaging an eighth place finish. I think that was a really big missed opportunity for Jimmy Johnson in these two races because he showed promise and took very little away from it. So the bad finish on Sunday spoiled his initial track position on Wednesday night. Uh, and, and that, that proved huge. I mean, that was a problem. Um, not that he has lost his passing ability outright, but that's a tough slog. And Wednesday night's race, tonight's race, you know, that was a tough, short race. So you're already asking a lot from your driver if you're starting towards the rear of the field. But thinking back to Sunday, what fascinated me about his push, and I don't want to say that that there was too much aggression, because if you're watching a Cup Series race, uh, dollars to donuts, everyone in that field is aggressive, because otherwise they would not have gotten to the Cup Series. But it was... Maybe not the desperation, but just the fact that he was just pressing. I mean, he was really pushing the pace on that car. And there were a number of laps where, you know, veteran guy has won the championship seven times. He's He was about to just drift up into the wall. And the attempted pass on Chris Busher, I don't know why he thought it was so important to get by Chris Busher or lap Chris Busher before one lap before winning a stage. But he really forced that pass. And that is so different from the Johnson of 10 years ago that was so deadly in the middle of a pass encounter. Um, we talked earlier this year on an episode about why I thought his passing developed when he was in late models because he passes like a late model driver. It's breaking down the corner, understanding where the driver in front of you is most vulnerable. And there was none of that on trying to get to Chris Busher. It was almost... Uh, pure instinct and they were bad instincts. And I think you'd expect him at this point in his career to not do that. So that was odd. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't know why I, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of mixed on the reaction. I know he has been what it's been maybe two years since he had a stage win, I think, but you know, you can sense a guy. I don't know if he's ever of, had a stage win. Uh, actually, has he not? Okay. No, he's so, never had a stage win. So, I mean, you're, you're talking about a guy that's kind of coming to grips at the end of his career and trying to make something happen. I mean, he's been pretty adamant about that. This is more than just a farewell tour, but pressing, uh, in the first stage at Darlington after 70 days off, he might have been the last person I would have expected to do something like that, but he did it. And, uh, and I think it's worth it to figure out how, you know, what, what kind of mental effect that has. I'm not trying to be an armchair psychologist, but 
that was strange. And I don't know that it's not a, a sign of things to come. All right. I'm just going down the list here so you can kind of pick what you want to talk about. But I mean, I know uh, Kevin Harvick finished third on Wednesday night, obviously one on Sunday, uh, you know, kind of is who we thought he was, right? I mean, a, a team with no practice, no qualifying rolls off with a lot of speed. I think that has the four car, Kevin Harvick and Rodney Childers written all over it. Uh, his teammate, Clint Boyer, did really well on Wednesday night for a while and then ended up walling it, cut down a tire. Disappointing for the winner of the first two stages there. I don't know if you want to touch on Stuart Haas. I was also looking at the Penske cars. Uh, really subpar effort in the Sunday race. And David, they were able to put, uh, use Monday and Tuesday maybe to their advantage and then put, you know, came back with, uh, Brad is in fourth, Joey Logano in sixth, Matt Benedetto in ninth, and Ryan Blaney had walled it. He was other, you know, he was running up there on Wednesday night. So at least a, a decent adjustment, if you will, from Sunday to Wednesday for the Penske cars. I don't know what else, uh, what else stood out to you for two races in Darlington? Um, I'll, I'll talk about Ryan Priest, uh, a little bit. I okay. think he scored the most valuable 20th place finish in the <laughs> history of NASCAR yeah, he had a on, on, on Sunday because it got him the poll, uh, for Wednesday. And he did, uh, finish top 10 at the end of the first stage. Uh, before the race, I tweeted out his up to date spider chart and where that 37 team is right now, Ryan Priest and Trent Owens. That is a prolific race team in the middle of the field. And we're not going to see a lot of them. Um, TV is always going to gravitate towards the front of the field. That's just the truism we have to deal with in NASCAR. But that is a very young driver and a very able crew chief who we've talked about a lot on this podcast that are having success positionally, just in terms of their positional mapping. Like they can go out and get spots. That's not a problem. It's finishing races. And it was just a punch to the gut that um, his engine erupted and his uh, his night was uh, shortened tonight. But look, he, he stayed in the top 10 with a car that came into the race ranked 24th in central speed at Darlington. Uh, I'm going to tell you, not every driver can do that. And that is uh, something our listeners should consider. That's – look, I think every – uh, every one of us has a, has a little bit of a scout in us, a little bit of a statistician. That's a potential diamond waiting to be mined in Ryan Priest, uh, a little bit rough around the edges. But if he can get in a situation that's right, and that might even be the race team that he's at right now, it's just a little bit of speed, but a, but a little bit of improvement can go a long way for that team. That 37 team, they don't have re- have the uh, the average finish to show for how good they've been in traffic this year, but it'll get there. They're too good to just not have that be their story for the season. All right, and last thing I'll I'll touch on David just for the the Darlington double again. We we during the the break we touched on uh, you know something good and something bad if you will from the first four races. My good was Bubba Wallace and how he had improved his average finish uh, remarkably uh, compared to last year. Two Darlington races, I believe he finished twenty first on Sunday and then followed that up with a sixteenth place on Wednesday night. Again, much better than he was doing last year. So kudos to him. And my bad for pointing out the first four races was Christopher Bell. And he only added to that on Sunday when he uh, crashed and did not have a good finish on Sunday. But David, a shout out to him. A very quiet 11th place finish on Wednesday night. And I can't think of someone in the field who needed a finish like that more than young rookie Christopher Bell. So kudos to him. Maybe it is the start of something more. 
Yeah. And this kind of track would suit a driver of, of Christopher Bell's ability. I think for him and for that team, Levine Family Racing, how how they kind of stick things out around a rookie driver, two races at Charlotte, and then we're going to hit some more traditional 1.5s, Atlanta and, and Homestead are, are now back on the schedule. That's going to be interesting because I thought that is where Christopher Bell really took to the Xfinity series immediately. Like he, he kind of instantly understood the tracks that are most prevalent on the NASCAR schedule. And that always stood out to me about him. So if LFR is, is willing to base a good campaign around a rookie driver, and that's not easy, how high their ceiling is, we'll, we'll probably get a glimpse of that in the coming weeks. Uh, just based on a schedule that may be coming into his favor. Good stuff. Glad to have racing to talk about again. Two races down in Darlington as we move on. All right, with Darlington in the rear view, let's look on to Charlotte and preview this week's race. And this week's race preview is sponsored by MonkeyKnifeFight.com. If you're listening to Positive Regression, then there's a good chance you're interested in playing daily fantasy sports. And if that's the case, MonkeyKnifeFight.com is the daily fantasy site for you. It's the fastest growing daily fantasy website on the planet. And this weekend, it'll feature multiple games around the Charlotte races, including head-to-head matchups and more or less, which is kind of like their over-under contest. We know positive aggression listeners are smart enough to win big, so we'll try to help you on your way. If you sign up for a new account, use the promo code POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. You'll receive 100% match bonus up to $50. Again, just use promo code P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D, POSREGPOD, at monkeyknifefight.com. State and age restrictions apply. See site for full terms and restrictions. David, on to two races at Darlington, including the longest race of the season, the Coca-Cola 600. Uh, before we look too far ahead, it's good to always look back. And last year's winner, Martin Truex Jr. David, we've seen him dominate this race before in, in terms of almost into total boredom, right? I mean, he just led so much of this race a few years ago that it was just such a dominating performance that it just stands out as so damn memorable. But he also won last year in 2019. And I was looking at the box score, which doesn't tell the whole story because you, you look at it and he finished ninth in the first stage, out of the top 10 in the second stage, and then he goes on and still leads more than 100 laps and wins the race. I actually reached out to Cole Pern to remember what happened, and he reminded me that Martin Truex hit the wall on lap 73, blew a tire, and kind of wrecked his car, and they spent much of the night trying to fix it, and man, did they fix it last year, David. Yeah, I mean, to the point that they had the second fastest car in the race, Kyle Busch had the fastest, and Truex's speed especially bore out on the long runs, which does not come as a surprise. Uh, last year, Joe Gibbs Racing ranked first through third in long run speed on the Charlotte Oval. But I would say it was Truex's short runs, namely his restarts, that put him over the top in last year's race. 14 positions gained on 12 restart attempts from inside the first seven rows. And look, you mentioned he hit the wall. I would argue that his race was actually more fortunate than it was unfortunate for this reason. His positioning on restarts, nine of those 12 attempts came from the preferred groove. And his winning pass came when he went to the lowest line 
around the track, uh, four wide following a restart, five laps to go. The front row consisted of Ryan Newman and David Reagan, who stayed out on old tires. That decision did not work out at all. But Kyle Busch was also there and in the mix. And Truex powered past all of them. You can argue that he would have had a more fitful time with Kyle Busch had Reagan and Newman not been on the front row. But uh, nonetheless, it was a deserving win. And more importantly, he put all his statistical strengths to good use. And it was a long race. As you point, he had ups and downs, but uh, it worked out to his benefit. Yeah. And when we think of a long race, I mean, you can think of, you know, the time that it'll take, you know, four plus hours, nearly five hours, maybe long green flag runs. But when they add that extra stage, that's an extra restart and there's potential for even maybe more restarts. So when it just struck me when you picked out the, the short runs as, as being the benefit for such a long race, that, that was interesting to me. Yeah. So we have to, we have to remember Sunday's race is going to be 600 miles. That's a long race, and with that is going to come a lot of long runs. But the highest concentration of passes are going to come within that two-lap window following each restart and then shortly thereafter. So that's a real opportunity for most of these guys to do a lot of their track position damage and get it out of the way, and then they're going to have to ride out the long runs, which then might see them string apart, and they might not have as many passing opportunities. Interesting things to talk about or think about because of his strengths as a driver and then the team strengths in terms of speed. Uh, you, you mentioned his skills at, at those restarts. So let's talk about the restart dynamic at Charlotte. Something, you know, we kind of talk about every week just because they're so damn important when it comes to Charlotte, the restart lanes, the preferred, the non-preferred. Uh, we saw a big disparity in Darlington. What's it like in Charlotte? So Charlotte's interesting. Uh, through the field as a whole, the outside should out-retain the inside. And that was the case in 2019. Those on the outside retained 77% of the time. Those on the inside did so 33% of the time. But the front row is up for interpretation. Hmm. Retention on the inside and outside was 64 to 57. And that is very close. At one point, in last year's race, uh, Fox caught Martin Truex and Cole Pern as race leaders discussing their lane choice. Uh, the spotter mentioned to Truex who was lined up behind him. Truex did not seem to care about that at all. Uh, he was seemingly attempting to base his decision solely on which line contained more grip. And I need to talk about that in a second. I think that is what we're going to see in Sunday's race and then a little bit of uh, Wednesday's race. Decisions dictated by where the driver's car feels better suited. And honestly, based on how close the retention numbers were between the two grooves on the front row, it might be okay to say that this is the dealer's choice. There might not uh, be a distinct spot to be had. But uh, as I'll tell you, Alan, this track surface, uh, there are plenty of unexpected changes from year to year and lap to lap. And the drama behind these decisions will be high for good reason. So I had to do some digging uh, this week. There's this quirk at Charlotte Motor Speedway where 
teams that miss on setups by a little bit appear really bad. And I don't know whether that's just my mind playing tricks on me, as in maybe most teams have a really good feel for Charlotte, and the ones who miss by only a little bit look as if they miss by a lot. So what I did is I reached out to some engineering friends of mine and got a little bit of feedback. And the consensus is that Charlotte Motor Speedway has by far the most temperature-sensitive surface just because this surface has been treated by every chemical under the sun. It has been (laughs) reimagined. It has been refurbished. uh, And its reactions over the years have been bizarre. And now NASCAR is inclined to throw down its PJ1 concoction. And all of this added together leads to these unexpected changes in grip from race to race. And in the case of the 600, from green flag to checkered flag, because it begins in the day and ends at night. Those who can keep up with the changing track and the changes to the various lines around the track are probably going to master this race. And like you mentioned, we've seen Martin Truex stink up the show. We saw Kyle Busch stink uh, stink up the show two years ago, but that kind of isn't the norm. Um, With no practice for these races, it almost seems as if these teams aren't actually competing against each other so much as they're trying to bet right on optimizing a setup. And that will be really hard. Uh, the driver input, you know, what they do, restart, passing, driving the car, what have you, will of course be valuable, but the consensus from the folks that I have talked to is that car strength and to a more isolated degree, handling is going to be the most important component of the game plan for Charlotte. So we've got the weather, we've got the surface, we've got the extra hundred miles, we've got no practice, we've got, uh, we do have qualifying this week, at least for the 600. Uh, in terms of wild cards, David, out of all the stuff that, that could possibly, uh, go wrong or have, have someone scratching their head or just keeping them up at night, what, what's your biggest wild card for, for the Charlotte races? I actually think the Wednesday night race will be odd. Hmm. Uh, it's slated to start an hour and a half later. It's shorter in mileage. It's possible that as a race, it will be more straightforward, as in there are less factors to consider. But given that a race will have just happened three days prior, there's an opportunity for adjustment and potentially adjustment in the wrong direction. So I'm interested in seeing what doesn't matter on Wednesday that mattered a lot on Sunday. Interesting. Uh, I'm still wondering. I mean, I reached out to a few people for uh, a few people in the garage, you know, on teams, just wondering if by Wednesday's race, if there'll be any sort of fatigue setting in back at the shop, whether it just be, you know, running back and forth, uh, having to put trucks together, trucks, what am I saying? <laughs> having to put cars, you know, all these race cars together, four races in 11 days. Um, most of the response I got was no, no fatigue. So I threw that out as my wild card. I am still wondering about practice. You know, we wondered it going into the Darlington races, especially the first one, obviously, with no practice, the long layoff. Uh, in terms of the cream rising, I think it only benefits them. We saw Kevin Harvick and them roll off the truck really well, goes out and wins that first Darlington race because, look, they're a good put-together team and have been for so long. But some of these younger drivers or some of these not-as-well-prepared teams, I think the lack of practice is really going to start to hurt these guys. And by the fourth race, you know, maybe they have some laps under them. 
after the 600 in Darlington, I mean the 600 in Charlotte, but when they roll off for the 600 without practice and just a few qualifying laps, uh, you know, that's just an extra hundred miles to kind of separate the field. And I'm really wondering what that lack of practice will do, David. Yeah. I mean, these, these races, this truncated schedule, this is going to lend itself, uh, to those with a first rate simulation program. Uh, sim data is going to decide these races going forward for the next few months. And that is taking the place of, it's already taken the place of traditional testing, like what we had 10 years ago, but it's going to take the place of practice in some of these cases. And it didn't come as a shock when Kevin Harvick won the first race out. They have a phenomenal uh, sim testing program. I've been told Rodney Childers uh, Monday through Thursday probably has a bigger impact than he does uh, on race weekends, which is pretty crazy to consider, but that's how well he is thought of. Uh, and that's what it's going to take. It's the teams that uh, unfortunately do have the resources to have this kind of SEM data program, but the ones that can make it work to their advantage are going to enjoy that advantage when there isn't another opportunity to adjust on your car. We talk about wild cards, and every week this year we have been picking our contrarian contenders, David. And for the first time, I get to brag because in that first Darlington race, I picked Kurt Busch. And if anybody was following me along on Twitter and you had listened to this podcast, I was paying close attention Every time I, you know, obviously I had a vested interest in Kurt Busch at the first Darlington race because I picked him as my contrarian contender. So I was pulling my hair out every single time because he would start on the inside row and go back a few positions, which we knew would happen because you listened to this podcast. But David, the one time he didn't, he actually, it was his, one of the worst restarts, uh, in terms of position all day. He started 10th on the outside row and guess what happened? He immediately went forward and went straight to the top five and ended up with a great, great finish. Uh, we ended up finishing third. So I'm take, I'm giving myself a pat in the back for that contrarian contender, David. I apologize for, uh, rubbing it in a little bit this week, but I got to take my wins when I can. <laughs> but let's, uh, we can focus on Charlotte. Who is your contrarian contender for Charlotte? I think Matt Kenseth will be Ooh. someone to watch. Uh, his team, has the speed at this particular racetrack. The number 42 team won the all-star race at Charlotte in 2019. And uh, that's sort of a dash race. So maybe maybe that's, uh, you know, comparable to Wednesday's race. The 42 team also produced the fourth fastest car in the Coca-Cola 600. And Charlotte seems like a place to which drivers can easily assimilate. Just because its shape is familiar, as you pointed out last year on this podcast, this is the original cookie cutter or the cutter from which the cookies came. I don't know. I don't know how you worded it, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not saying that Kenseth is a threat to win this thing outright, but I mean, you got to think muscle memory alone coupled with a car that we already know is fast should bring forth a decent finish. So I'm curious to see what the old guy can do. All right, not bad. Uh, we certainly that first Arlington race was a was a fun story to tell. Seeing that Ken's is up there in the top ten, uh, my contrarian contender pick may be a little controversial, David. So a controversial contrarian contender because I'm picking one of the fastest cars in the field. I'm picking Chase Elliott as my contrarian contender. Is that okay? I mean, he seems like someone who would go out there and do well. But when you look at the data, or when you look at just his record. His resume of wins, there's six wins, none of them at a track like Charlotte. 
you know, he won in a mile and a half like Kansas, but he does not have a win. So I wouldn't consider him an all-out favorite to go out there and win Charlotte. But I like the speed that he has this year. I like what the Hendrick cars are doing. And uh, over 600 miles with a crew chief like Alan Gustafson, I think Chase Elliott can go out there and be maybe not the first person you pick, but I believe he can go out there and win the Coca-Cola 600. Hmm. I'm going to need to see the odds for this race because I think he's going to be close to the top on that one. Should he be though? I mean, is that the head or the heart? When you see that, when, when we're looking at the odds for Charlotte, should he be a favorite when you look at his, I mean, track record <laughs> at, at these ovals that he doesn't have any wins at? That is fair. I mean, if you, if you want to take uh, history into account, but this is a far different Hendrick Motorsports than we have seen in recent years. And when that is the case, when speed has this kind of a jump that he is enjoying, he was, he had the eighth fastest car in 2019. He has the fastest car so far in 2020. That's a pretty sizable jump. That's an important increase. So I don't know. I'm, I might let our listeners decide. It's very clear to me that you're attempting to pad your stats. I appreciate <laughs> that. It's okay. I applaud it. Um, but I think I'll let our listeners decide on whether you can gloat about that if he indeed does become a Coca-Cola 600 winner. Sorry. I don't have an, I don't have enough backup answer. So Chase Elliott, you're my contrarian contender because normally I wouldn't pick you. So now I am. So there you go. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We're available no matter what your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That stuff really does help in spreading the word. Tell your friends. Tell anybody who's a race fan. Give us a listen. I, I can guarantee we'll make it for a better racing experience. We'll make you a smarter race fan, I hope. And we do notice all the love you give us, so that is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer them. You know this. Send us your questions on Twitter at PosRegPod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What do you got? On MotorsportsAnalytics.com this week, I wrote about the clear and present speed of Hendrick Motorsports and I interviewed Hendrick's VP of competition, Jeff Andrews, and he helped me understand the thought process behind their slow burn build into the contender they are right now, this rise back to prominence. It features spider charts on Chase Elliott and Alex Bowman, uh, both top five drivers in terms of central speed, and it is completely free. So please check that out and enjoy it. Excellent. Good stuff. Uh, I'll be uh, just, hey, keep it on the Fox family of networks for all the racing action because there's so much going on between uh, the trucks, Xfinity, uh, the cup cars, multiple races. It's uh, just, just keep it on there. FF Fox and FS1 throughout the week. I'll actually be interviewing the uh, winner of the Coca-Cola 600 after the race, and that will be on Monday's edition of Race Hub. So I'm looking forward to that because uh, you never really know who uh, who it'll be. And uh, it always ends up being a, a different story. It could be a first time winner. Maybe Jimmy Johnson goes out there and wins. I'm looking forward to it because, uh, you know, it's one of those deals, David, you got to prepare on the fly, right? Because you don't know who's going to win. And then uh, you get to have a long uh, kind of formal interview with the winner. So that'll be pretty fun. So I'm looking forward to that. And look, I'm just glad racing is back. We have something to talk about. Darlington was fun. Charlotte will be awesome. So thank you guys for listening to Positive Regression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Have a great week of racing, everybody.
realize you liked me that way deal. Because it's one thing to receive McDonald's, but an entirely other thing to know that they woke up early to face the world and bring you McDonald's breakfast still hot in the bag. Appreciate you. There's a deal for every morning. Now grab two loaded sausage burritos for only three bucks. Prices and participation may vary. Single item at regular price. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.